The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. See, I'm probably not the only one with a cold. <laughs> Last Sunday, some of you were here, Wynn Fricke, one of the co-founders of Common Ground, also my partner, um, gave the talk. And I was leading a retreat at Holy Spirit Retreat Center that we do four times a year or so. And it was a great retreat, but there were like five or so people on the retreat who were really sick. So it was like an incubator. (laughs) And this is karma, right? Because people misunderstand. I don't know if people were here a couple weeks ago when we were talking about karma, but we misunderstand it. We think, I guess I deserve to be sick. I must have been bad, and now I get my just, des- just desserts. But all that karma means is there are causes, right? There's always causes. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, I started talking about equanimity, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about that tonight. And in particular, to get interested in the causes for equanimity. Because as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, equanimity, in a way, is the most obvious or easiest way to get a sense of what the Buddha means by awakening or liberation or freedom. You know, we hear these words, nibbana, nirvana, enlightenment. We hear these words and we kind of turn it into a Buddhist equivalent of heaven. Oh, you know, if only I could be in that lofty, perfect place. But what's important is that we're always, whatever we read or hear, it's like it's got to pass the test of is it relevant in this experience of being a human being with a body and mind? Is it relevant in this experience? Because if it's not, at the very least, put it on a shelf somewhere, if not throwing it out. Because, you know, the Buddha was very, you know, so pragmatic in how he presented the teachings. The issue we're interested in resolving is the stress that's here now, right? Not the theoretical idea I have of being a suffering human being, the story of me with all my problems. It's not that story that we want to fix. It's the direct experience of our heart or mind feeling burdened or heavy or So we all experienced, in a very direct, immediate sense, some qualities of equanimity or the heart being peaceful with whatever's going on. I was, we were talking about this this morning in the Sunday morning program, and <clears throat> somebody was just talking about how equanimity seems like such a heady thing. But, you know, I mentioned this two weeks ago when I started talking about equanimity. One of the easiest ways to experience some equanimity is to have a really nice experience. You know, think about the times you've had a really good massage. Hopefully, everyone's had a really good massage. If not, see if you can get yourself a really good massage. (laughs) Because when the body feels really nice in that way, right, and those sensations are strong, so the attention goes, knows those pleasant experiences, sensations, 
and the mind basically becomes secluded from whatever else it would be paying attention to, like my to-do list or what's going on in this country or the fact that I have a cold or all these different things that could be more agitating, like it isn't fair to have a cold or is it, in, it isn't fair that politics are the way that they are right now or that people are being oppressed in the way they're being oppressed right now. But we're just in that experience of feeling the massage, <coughs> the mind collects itself, and we feel pretty equanimous. But that equanimity is happening because there's nothing agitating in the forefront of attention for a while, right? Like a good vacation or a good meditation even, right? A good nap, a good night out with some wholesome friends doing some wholesome things, right? These activities we can absorb into and and in absorbing into them, the mind has to put down everything else including and especially all the things that agitate the mind. And then we have a very temporary but real experience of equanimity. And it's really important when you have those opportunities, a good sit, a good nap, a good massage, a good hot bath, a good this, a good that, evening where you don't have anything to do, hanging out, petting your cat or dog or whatever it is, yourself. It's really important that we notice the experience of equanimity. Oh, this is the mind that doesn't need the moment to be different than it is. Now, of course, we're going to understand that, yeah, of course I'm equanimous now because it's nice, but later, tomorrow. But that's not the point. The point is, this is what it feels like to have a mind, a heart, that's not being pushed around, not reacting to sense experience. It's really important to learn that, to notice that experience, to name it and let it in, feel it deeply. Oh, oh. I mean, it's interesting in the tradition, this marked a real turning point in the Buddha's, the way the Buddha was practicing. So before he became a Buddha, he was just a seeker, somebody trying to address his own existential problems, just like we are. And he had, done, he had been doing a lot of ascetic practices, including extreme fasting. And he had sort of gotten to the end of the rope <clears throat> and realized, I mean, he was close to death, evidently, at least as the story goes. And on some level, he was intuiting that this isn't right, this isn't working. And, he, and a memory came to his mind of a time when he was like three or four, a young boy. And it was one of the festival days where he was growing up, and his father was like the chieftain of a kind of a little fiefdom, not really a king, but sort of the top guy in a family-run sort of clan-based area in northern India. And they were having like the spring plowing ceremony, you know, the first time that they plant. And the head, you know, does the first plowing or something like that. And there's going to be a big feast and partying, happy times. And the the little Buddha-to-be was sitting under the rose apple tree, as the story goes. (laughs) And 
probably seen everybody happy with the day off and the festival and the music or whatever they had going on then. In his mind, like we would, if you like massage, if we were having a really good massage, you know, his mind just settled, just collected in the pleasantness and wholesomeness of what was happening in him and around him. And he experienced, as a little kid, a mind with a very profound kind of equanimity, a mind not agitated, not needing anything to be different than it is. So here he is, you know, 35 years later or something, and uh, this memory comes to him, you know, after trying like really hard to be a spiritual seeker and finding teachers and mastering what they had to teach and still realizing I'm a neurotic human being to some degree. I mean, he gained like a lot of skill in concentrating his mind and doing this and that, but he hadn't really solved the basic issue of human existence. And the thought arose after that memory came to him, maybe that's the way. Maybe this is the way this experience of equanimity, the cultivation of this kind of equanimity. And then his own wise intuition came back, yeah, this is the way. And so then he saw, you know, he kind of started to eat again and (coughs) regained his physical health. And then shortly thereafter, had his you know, famous night under the Bodhi tree, which is a celebrated event in Buddhism, where the Buddha had his deep insight, came to understand. But what's important for us is to understand that equanimity isn't just the fruit of good practice, and, but it's really the, the primary cause for awakening. Like if we're going, if our mind, our heart is going to really see things as they are, then that mind can't be busy trying to make things the way I want them to be, trying to get rid of what I don't like or get what I like. So for me to really sense how it is right now, what's going on right now, or to sense, perceive what I'm not perceiving accurately, then my mind has to be in this balanced, neutral, impartial place. It's the only way to really see things clearly. We can't be both manipulating the present moment and understanding it. You've got to choose. And this is really important just in general in understanding our practice. This is a path of deepening understanding. Now, we do do some things to affect to manipulate, even to use a stronger word, our experience, right? We do do things to set in motion calm and equanimity so that we can see things as they are, right? So there's, there's always a two-step process in, in awakening and just, I think, generally in spiritual practice. The first thing is we need to develop an instrument that can see things clearly. Because, you know, we could say, if we could go and interview a bunch of people, are you seeing things clearly? <laughs> are you connected to your life? You know? Everybody would say, yeah. Right? 
That's what delusion means. That's the definition <laughs> of delusion is we think we already understand. We think we're already seeing clearly. We already know. So we keep doing what we've always done and we keep getting the same results we've always gotten because we don't have that spiritual humility, which is, I mean, basically it's, I don't think I really get what's going on here. And then here's the next part of that. I don't think I'm capable of really deeply sensing, feeling, knowing what's going on here. I have to develop my mind, my heart, to be a more stable, clear, powerful instrument of seeing clearly, of waking up. That humility, that's the real telltale sign somebody's making some progress on the path. It's humility about our own capacity, our own capacity to understand. Because, you know, how that, what's that line, <coughs> I think from Suzuki Roshi, I think it was him who said it first, but anyway, in an expert's mind, there are few possibilities. In a beginner's mind, there are many, right? So there's, like in terms of getting out of the box, like one of the boxes we're in, just in terms of how the Buddha, you know, because we have some pointing out instructions from the Buddha that can really support this humility, like the Buddha's teaching that whatever this all is, in it, inside, outside, whatever all this is, it's nature, it's not self. It has nothing to do with a permanent self, a fixed self. But our perception, isn't it true? Our perception is this very much has to do with me as a fixed self, inner, outer experience. It's all about me, not you, me. It's all about me. So that's just like, so when we get these pointing out instructions, we realize, okay, so my way of being, my way of understanding isn't lining up with the Buddha's. I guess he's wrong. I mean, that's, you know, oh, he was talking 2,500 years ago. It's probably just mistranslated. <laughs> it's like uh, one of the teachings that we have that same sense about in Buddhism has to do with sensuality. This is the theme of our Buddhist studies course, the Monday night Buddhist studies course in the fall, this last fall, because it's so provocative what the Buddha taught about sensuality. In the early translators, uh, kind of from the Victorian era, the late 1800s, you know, they would translate this word nibida as disgust, disgust for sensuality, for sense experience, repulsion or revulsion. And then later, more recently, uh, the scholars are using the word in disenchantment with sensuality, disenchantment, right? So that's like a very provocative thing, and it's just so easy for us to assume, well, clearly the Buddha wasn't talking about puppies when he talked about disenchantment with sense experience or with like wholesome relationships or oatmeal or other, <laughs> you know, good things. We don't need to be disgusted or repulsed or disenchanted with a good massage, that's good, right? And so we stop being interested. We're, we stop, we're, we're not as interested in getting into that open and neutral, powerfully clear, balanced place to actually see 
the image the Buddha uses around that relationship to sensuality, he says, it's a very powerful image, he says, it's like a dog finding a bone that's been out in the sun for a while. And so all the flesh is gone off the bone and, and it's been bleached. There's nothing, there's no nutriment there. But the dog, seeing a bone, grabs it, chews it, chews it, chews it, chews it. But at some point, the dog is disgusted, right? Because what has it realized? There is nothing satisfying here in this bone, right? And so this is the image the Buddha used, this, you know, 2,500 years ago, that simile for all of sensuality, all of our sights, all of the sounds, think of the music you love, all of the smells, the tastes, the touches, the good massage, and all of the thoughts, all of the ideas, right? Because some of those experiences are quite, on the surface, quite pleasant, aren't they? But the Buddha <coughs> suggests that we develop some clear, balanced, equanimous awareness and we start taking a closer look at sense experience and we might find that whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, in the end it's not satisfying. And we kind of get it intellectually because you know, we have all had, hopefully all of us, we've had moments of real pleasant, wholesome, pleasant experience, right? Think of times where things were really nice for you, around people you trusted and felt safe and loved by, and having a nice meal with friends is an obvious example, hanging out with your four-legged friends, for some of you, being in nature, swimming in the ocean, you know, having a good nap. So we've had these kind of pleasant experiences and they were clearly pleasant. So the Buddha, you know, he's not in, en in any way in denial that there are pleasant experiences in the same way there are really painful experiences. But what he's saying is even if we tried right now to add up, like we really worked our memory and we were just sort of like naming all of our pleasant experiences. Is it enough? Are you done? Needing pleasant experience? Anybody done needing pleasant experience? <laughs> right, so it, it always seems like when I think, because I'm feeling a little sick, oh, soon I'll be home, I'll have more of my hot beverage, honey, lemon, throat coat, tea. <laughs> you know, and uh, snuggled and whatever I'll end up doing. But we understand that it won't be enough if we're being honest with ourselves, right? It will be what it is. And of course, needing it to happen is stressful. So the mind being dependent on pleasant experience, wholesome experience, that's stressful. And when I... <coughs> And when I'm fortunate enough to get pleasant experience, it will be temporary, right? And even some of the time when we're in the midst of receiving the pleasant experience, we're not really there. We're thinking about how I want this to happen again. You're having the massage and you're thinking, can I afford to do this every month? <laughs> Maybe every two months, right? So you're not actually in the pleasantness of the moment. I'm sure you've noticed this on retreat. 
where you're planning the next, I mean, uh, vacation, where you're planning the next vacation on your vacation. You know, oh, it's so good to get on vacation. Where should I go next year? You know, and you're not there with the sight of the beach or the sound of the waves or the, you're just in a stressful place figuring out what you're going to do with your stressful life. So equanimity, the deeper kind of equanimity is really arises from this humility because we can get some equanimity, like I said, whenever we line things up enough that we're secluded from things that irritate the mind. And then because the mind is secluded, there's some equanimity. Like, yeah, I don't need things to be different than they are because things are really nice. That's an equanimity, right? It gives us a flavor. But then a wise person would go, yeah, but this equanimity is a dependent equanimity. It's dependent on things being really nice for me right now. And they won't always be nice. Right? So a wise mind would wonder, is it possible? Because equanimity, when we actually wake up and look at it, so that's why that's the first real encouragement that when things do line up in your life and it's pleasant for you, instead of thinking about how to make this last, get really interested in the mind that doesn't need things to be different than they are right now, the mind that's content, the mind that has a peaceful relationship with the circumstances, the conditions, the experiences that are showing up. So it's not, the mind is not in a contentious relationship with what's going on. So really get a sense of that. And you'll see, like the Buddha did in his memory as a child, I wonder if that's the way to live in this world with equanimity, with a heart that's peaceful no matter the conditions. Now, clearly we get my heart's peaceful with the conditions because the conditions are nice. But I wonder if this way of being with experience can somehow manifest no matter the conditions, pleasant, unpleasant, confusing, clear, can the heart be unshaken, even, peaceful, intimate, no matter the conditions? So we need to do basically what happened in the Buddhist life. We need to get a sense of what equanimity is, usually initially through seclusion. That's why in Buddhist practice there's such a strong emphasis on concentration practice. and living on an outward level, living with harmony, like having really harmonious relationships, living in around other skillful people, because we'll touch this more relative, temporary kind of equanimity more often. Every once in a while we'll have a good sit, and the mind will quiet down, it'll get peaceful, we'll just feel the breath coming in, feel the breath going out, We'll have a peaceful relationship with the body, easeful relationship with the body, the breath, and even thoughts that come and go. Because the mind isn't so entangled with the past and future, with hopes and dreams, it's secluded, right? It's just like bend with the breath coming in, bend with the breath going out. 
Of course, it could be anything. It could be a mantra. It could be a visualization. But generally, in, in this style of Buddhist practice, we use a lot of uh, the body, sound, breath, loving-kindness, the feeling of loving-kindness as our primary meditation anchors or objects, right? So we seclude ourselves by just knowing our meditation object, whatever it is, and not paying attention to everything else the mind might otherwise pay attention to. So that's the seclusion. But like I said, you can get it in any number of ways, but we want to cultivate a recognition of how, like basically sensing the potency of equanimity, the impartiality, the unshakableness of the heart, like a heart that's not dependent, like it, it's a, the contentment, the ease, the space of the mind, the heart, isn't dependent on anything. And we get a flavor of that when conditions are really pleasant because suddenly, because things are so pleasant, suddenly the mind isn't obsessively, neurotically trying to make things pleasant. Right? So that part of the mind, what we call craving, like wanting things to be different than they are, <coughs> that part of the mind stops. That alone is a real insight when you see that that part of that, you could say the biggest habit in the mind is craving, that restless need for things to be different than they are. Even when things are really well, like I said, on vacation, getting a massage, we're not content. I want more. I want to lock it in. Would this body worker work just on my body, at my disposal? Right? <laughs> I don't know about you, but every once in a while, not so much these days, but, you know, it's just a neurotic habit. started, you know, when I was probably five, like winning the lottery or having everything you want, right? And, you know, because we're all, of course, here politically correct, we, we would do it just the right way, <laughs> use that sort of wealth or that, all those resources. But we could do so much more for the world if we had our own personal masseuse. Because <laughs> you know, then I wouldn't have to practice. If you know, things are getting tight, I don't need to, to like open to the sensations. I'll just get someone to work it out. <laughs> so we take advantage of those times. We get a sense of what equanimity is. And then naturally what arises in the mind and heart is this devotion to equanimity. But because we can't always keep things pleasant, well, really, this, this is where that humility comes in. So how does this equanimity arise when things are difficult or things are ambiguous or confusing? How does equanimity arise then? And this brings us back to the story about the dog and the bone. Because the two ways equanimity arise, one is through seclusion and the other is through the deepening of understanding of what sense experience, the, the world of sensuality is. So we start to pay attention. That's what the Buddha says. So for example, one thing you can, even not even just in a sit, although it's easier when you're sitting still, the mind's a little more quiet, a little more collected, more gathered. It's easier, but you can just start being interested in the feeling tone. 
Feeling tone arises every time we're having an experience. Like right now, you're having experiences. You're seeing things, you're hearing me talk, you're thinking about what I'm saying, you're looking at other people, and every single time you see another person or you comprehend what I'm saying, there is a feeling associated with that experience. It's either kind of pleasant, kind of unpleasant, or very <coughs> unpleasant, or it's neutral. Right? And so we can start looking at feeling, the feeling tone that comes, and instead of, like if we're not aware of feeling, it's still there, but we're not aware that I'm feeling this now, it's pleasant like this now, or unpleasant like this now, if we're not aware of it, we're just going to react to the feeling tone in very predictable ways. That's just what we do. We want to hold on to the pleasant feelings. We want to push away or get rid of the unpleasant. And we want to ignore the neutral because they're neutral. I don't care about neutral. I feel threatened by unpleasant, and I'm going to show up for that. And I really like pleasant. I'm going to show up for that. But neutral, I don't show up for because it's neutral. It doesn't matter. Unfortunately, that's a big part of our life that's neutral, that we just basically unconsciously think I don't need to be intimate with because it's neutral. But now, because we're getting these instructions, we can start getting interested in feeling. And we can experiment when something's neutral, like be very clearly aware, oh, it's neutral. <coughs> really let it in and realize I'm okay with neutral. I don't need neutral to be different than it is. And then do it with unpleasant. Not the worst unpleasant experience of your day, but just sort of ordinary unpleasant experiences. You bump your head, you stub your toe, somebody looks at you the wrong way, and it kind of brings up some you know, humiliation or embarrassment or something, and it's unpleasant. So then you say, okay. So you're going, you know, the, the drama is on the surface like, what idiot left that thing there for me to stub my toe on, right? You drop into, this hurts. This just hurts. It hurts like this. So there's this feeling, this unpleasantness. I wonder what I should do with it. Well, let me experiment with what the Buddha suggested, which is to be intimate with the feeling, in this case unpleasant, and see if in really opening to the unpleasantness that I have to do anything about it. Maybe I can just be intimate with unpleasantness. Now, if there's something we can do, it's okay to do it, but first it would be really okay, it would be great if we could realize I don't have to do anything with this unpleasantness because I'm seeing right here in this moment the capacity to be intimate with unpleasantness without needing it to go away. So then if we you know, do something with our stub toe, put some ice on it or something, great. But if there's no ice to put on it, no problem, because I can be with it. Same with pleasant. So one way to develop this more <coughs> pervasive, unshakable equanimity, what we call this unconditioned happiness, right? Because a happiness, a peace that doesn't depend on the particular circumstances or conditions of the moment, is we just start getting interested in feeling tone all day long. And where every time some feeling arises, it's a little teacher for us. Okay, 
let me feel this feeling. Let me feel the unpleasantness of this feeling, the pleasantness or the neutrality of this feeling. Let me be so undefended, so open, that I, I get a little glimpse into the mind that's not dependent on feeling. Because right now our normal you know, conditioned mind, habit mind, is very much driven by feeling. I mean, if we could, if we had a little drone taking a picture, you know, following you all day long video, with a video camera, what we would see, if, and then at the end of the day we'd speed it up and we'd observe, what we'd see is almost constant activity driven by the particular feeling in the moment. Oh, I'm a little cold, put a coat on. A little hot, take it off. A little stiff, stretch my leg out. You know, a little kind of uh, rest us, I'm going to just be still for a moment. We're constantly reacting to the different feelings that are around us. Oh, this is boring. Oh, this is great. Pushed and pulled by feeling. We don't see it because in every moment it, may, it <coughs> seems to make sense to push away the unpleasant, to move toward the pleasant. But when we have a more both intimate look but also this sort of very broad, time-lapsed look at how the mind is with feeling, it really breaks our heart wide open because we've been tormented by feeling tone forever. I see this with my cat a lot, our cat at home, right? Just like, uh, I mean, animals are great, but you really see how driven, how imprisoned they are by pleasant and unpleasant. It's a prison. And the question for us, can we see that and can we, with imagination, with the instructions from wise folks like the Buddha, can we aspire as, as to something that's beyond a life of being pushed around by pleasant and unpleasant experience, a neutral experience? And this is really where equanimity, the teachings on equanimity point us. So when we study the nature of experience, that it's changing, we can't hold on to anything. It's like sand through the fingers. You get that house finally the way you like it, and then in two weeks you have to dust it, right? We've been in our house since 1993. And some of those things we did early, like some of the windows we had changed back in 93 in the early years we moved, after we moved in, they're getting ready to have to be changed again. Because the thought was, oh, God, we got this taken care of. Done. For a while, you know. <laughs> Brush the teeth. Done. Until the next time. You know, feed the body, done. Until the next time, poop, done. <laughs> Until the next time. It's just like there's always more to do. This restlessness is built into sensuality. So the way that we find equanimity is we just let it, we let nature be nature, right? We know the, we, we're realizing the mind that's not dependent on sensuality, on the movement of sense existence, including the personality, the body. We're just letting it all be nature. 
Because the sense we have, like before insight deepens, is my happiness depends on me engaging sensuality, the world of sense experience, and making it like line up so that I get everything I want. But you know what? Eventually we're going to realize that that's a setup. Hopefully we don't have to be 80 before we realize that that's a setup. That you can't get what we want from sensuality. Right? I mean, how many close friends do we have to have get terminal cancer or in a car accident or some terrible thing happen or to ourselves before we realize we don't want to put all our eggs in that basket of pleasantness and getting rid of unpleasantness, right? Because you're not in control of it. Does anybody feel like they're in control? So where is our refuge then? If it's not in having perfect, pleasant sense experiences one after the other, what are we counting on for real happiness? Now Buddha, what he came to understand is there is real happiness, there is real freedom in letting go in this movement of the mind toward equanimity so that there's still a body, there's still a personality, as imperfect as it is, right? conditioned by, I was a kid, about the early 60s shows that my, this mind has been conditioned by. You know, Leave it to Beaver and My Three Sons and a little later My Mother the Car and <laughs> some of you recognize those shows hopefully. But we just let all of that be nature, right? Everything gets to be nature and then the wisdom in the mind is realizing the mind that's not dependent the mind that's not attached, the mind that's not tied to nature. Now that mind, that whatever you want to call that, mind, awareness, it's also not self, but it teaches us how to be in this world. Like the Buddha was really pragmatic. He wasn't trying to teach what's the absolute truth. He was trying to demonstrate a way, model a way, teach a way to be a human being, to have a body, to have a personality, to have a life without being burdened by that experience, without being afraid in that experience, without the mind being dependent. So again, just to finish it up, so we get tastes of equanimity when conditions, circumstances are really nice, but we have to notice it because we tend to be unconscious when we, things are really nice because it's really nice. I don't have to practice, right? I don't have to be aware because it's really nice. But what? Just the opposite. It's really nice. Let me get really interested. Like, what is that experience? What's going on when it's really nice? Oh, look it. The mind's not neurotically trying to make things different right now. And that's like this. Let's call that something. Let's call that the mind free of craving the mind free of neurotic restlessness. Even though it's temporary, we can see it. And then, then that just brings up a natural curiosity in the mind, especially if you've been studying these teachings. Well, could the mind be this free no matter the conditions? Now it's arising because of the conditions. Could it be this way without? Well, let's see. And then that begins this discovery, this awakening to the conditions. Like, 
we see something pleasant and we see, or I could get attached, but no, I'm practicing <coughs> being not dependent, not attached. And then something unpleasant arises and go, oh, I could try to get rid of this. You know, like you're sitting, I could move my body, but I'm not going to move my body, right? Because I'm going to feel what it feels like to want to move my body, feel the unpleasantness in my shoulder or my back or my knee. But we hold still, right? Because it's a training. I'm going to practice being okay with that feeling that goes with the pain in the knee, right? The unpleasantness of it. Oh, yeah, it's just unpleasantness of it. It's just unpleasantness. Because <coughs> we're discovering the mind that can let everything be what it is. The mind that's like space. In the Thai uh, force tradition, they talk about the mind that's like space versus the activity in the mind, what the mind is seeing, what the mind is experiencing, right? And letting them, they of course will always coexist, the mind that knows and what it knows, they're always going to coexist, but to see them as independent. So there's the activity, what's coming and going, and then there's the awareness that knows. And when we understand that, when we have that insight, then we start to learn how to be in the world without being pushed around by the pleasant and unpleasant. And then we become fearless. Then we can actually be compassionate because we're not afraid of taking care of ourselves. We're not, I mean, doesn't mean we stop taking care of ourselves. But we're okay when things go bad. And we're okay when things go well because we realize we're realizing a mind that's not, we're realizing something that's not pushed around by the ups and downs. You can call this the space of wisdom or the space of freedom or whatever you want to call it. But it's something that's always here, but because the mind is mostly obsessed with getting pleasant <coughs> and getting rid of unpleasant and navigating this world of pleasant and unpleasant, we tend not to notice that place. So I'll leave it here. It would be nice to hear from some of you, your own experiences with equanimity, questions that you have about this topic. We'll start over here and then go to you, Kermit. Okay. So my question is trying to get to, to a state where you can, where your mind can... I, I'm trying... Let's see. How do I say this? Okay. So there are certain situ situations in your life that that make you either a relationship or a, a job or something that make you feel less in, in a good state, even if you get really centered and you really are able to, to do what you know, we're trying to do, at what point do you say, this is making me not get to be able, ever be in that state? Or, you know what I mean? If you get, even if you get really skillful, when do you decide, okay, I have to change something here besides getting really skillful? <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you can understand. Yeah, yeah. Because... Remember, when you said, like the example I gave of sitting still in a meditation period, that's, you're doing that on purpose. It's not about sitting, sitting still is in itself skillful, but you're using it as a training ground. So when we, like somebody serves you food you don't like to eat, you know, you could just say to them, I don't really eat this food, and that would be fine. Or you could take it as a training, which is, I'll eat this, you know, and it will be unpleasant. 
But I'll practice with the unpleasantness, right? I'll practice being free with unpleasantness. Same thing with the cold. Some things I can do and some things I can't do to, to affect how this cold is playing itself out, right? So I'm doing the things I can do. Before I came here, you know, I had my head in a pot of hot water. I put in a little eucalyptus, <laughs> put a big towel over me, just breathing in the steam, loosen things up a little bit, right? So when we can affect, when we, and especially when we can do that without greed and aversion, just out of compassion for ourselves, compassion for others, we do what we can do, but there's enough showing up in our life that we can't change. That's what we can develop equanimity with. And then the sitting practice too, right? Because when we decide we're going to sit for an hour or 30 minutes or 10 minutes, we set the timer, Insight Meditation Timer. It's an app you can get on your phone if you want. Put it aside. I'm here for this 10 minutes, this 30 minutes, this hour. Come hell or high water, I'm not moving or not moving much. I'm not going to try to fix my life. I'm not going to try to, you know, if there's an irritating sound in the other room or the cat scratching at the door. No. I'm dead to the world, which means that everything that arises in me, around me, is ground for practice for this period of time. So in our daily life then, we do have permission to fix things and do things. But maybe before we fix it, we just feel it and make peace with the feeling. Because then you might be so much more skillful at addressing the issue, having already made peace with what you're feeling around that issue. Right? So your partner says something to you that really pushes your button. I mean, this is just common sense. We do this, hopefully we do this anyway. You know, what do we do? Well, we sit with it for a few minutes. We see the roots, like why this person might have said this to us. We notice what it's gotten, what's been triggered in my, you know, from my own dispositions, that old shame or old this or that. Oh, yeah, we see it all and we notice it hurts. Right? We go right to the feeling. Oh, this hurts. It's unpleasant. Can this be okay? Can I relax? Is opening to the unpleasantness of this destructive, dangerous? No. No, it's good. It's actually liberating. So we work with it maybe five, ten minutes. And then, having made peace with the unpleasantness, then when I approach the person, my partner, let's say, to talk, (coughs) then what I have to say isn't charged by my unwillingness to feel the unpleasantness of it. Because I've already proved that I can feel the unpleasantness. So then I can say something, and the motivation will be to take care of the relationship, to do what's best for the both of us, instead of, I'm hurting, so I'm going to make you hurt. I mean, we don't say that out loud, but that's kind of what goes on unconsciously. I'm hurting, so I'm going to make you hurt. Yeah, I'm experiencing some real doubt right now, okay? Um, You know, it's kind of easy for me to feel equanimous over the temperature of my coffee or something like that. But um, is that equanimity going to be there when there is an extreme circumstance? Death of a child, you're laying in the hospital, 70% of your body covered with burns, you know, bomb falls on your house, that kind of thing. Is that that sense of equanimity going to be there? It doesn't seem like those are things you can trained for. Oh, I think so, Kermit. 
And I think um, we do, but, but we start where we build confidence. Because <coughs> I can tell in the tone of your voice that there can be for us a real attachment to reactivity. Because as we begin to understand equanimity, it really challenges so much of our programming, our conditioned programming of the mind, the heart. And it's, it's humiliating to all of our efforts to struggle with life, all of our attempts, because it's basically calling it into question. And um, so it's a, actually a good sign when there's some pushback to the teachings on equanimity. That means we're letting them in. They're very, it's very provocative. One of the images in Tibetan Buddhism, it's a little bit graphic, but it's as if a, a mother, let's say, uh, with no arms or legs, sitting on the side of a river, watching her child be swept away. That's an image that they use, like in terms of cultivating equanimity. One of the things the Dalai Lama repeats often is a teaching from a a well-known Buddhist monk, Shantideva, from the ninth century, an Indian Buddhist monk from the ninth century. And he had a teaching that, like I said, is often repeated, including by the Dalai Lama, which is, if there's something you can do, do it. If there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can do. But in either case, whether there is something you can do or there isn't something you can do, why be tight? Why be afraid? So you're on your deathbed, right? If there's something you can do, do it. If there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you can do. Or you're losing your child or whatever it might be. So I'm not saying I can live that all the time. But isn't it true that we get that at least intellectually, like that that makes sense? If there's something we can do, do it. If there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do. But in either case, why would we justify being tight, aversive, hateful, greedy, or whatever, reactive in some unhelpful, unwholesome way? We just do it because in the moment when we're not seeing clearly, not looking deeply, anger seems functional. Greed seems functional. Denial, distraction seems functional. But with more wisdom, more space in the mind, more depth, more steadiness of, of awareness, we see anger is never helpful. I mean, anger will arise, but acting out anger is never helpful. Acting out greed is never helpful. Acting out denial, distraction, you know, di- distorted ways of seeing things. It's never helpful to distort reality, you know, the mind coloring things so it feels better some kind of personal dishonesty, you know. That's never helpful. We totally understand why it happens. There are causes and conditions for why we might be dishonest with ourselves. But to the degree we see that we're acting out anger or greed or kind of being deluded, we would never consciously say, yeah, that's a good thing. We see, no, that doesn't help. There's no need. Being tight doesn't help. So on the one hand, you're right. It's really hard 
to imagine in these more extreme situations that hard to imagine what equanimity would look like or that it would be available. But we get it intellectually that it would be good, right? If the world were literally falling apart, what was that movie? There was one movie where there's like amazing earthquakes and it's like the whole world was falling apart. It's amazing what they can do with graphic <laughs> computer-generated <laughs> images. Anyway, it's like, how would you want, I mean now, because it's not happening, how would you want to be in that moment? Or just our own death, like imagining our own death. This is how I got started with the practice, way back in 1982, just having studied some of the texts. And the Buddha makes a big deal of using your reflection, your contemplation of your own death. That's a big part of the Buddhist tradition. So I, I said, I'll do that. So I started doing that. You know, and it was, I had a really powerful opening in my mind, <coughs> making peace with my own imagining of being dead. Right? So I really worked it, you know, putting all the powers of my imagination to mind, kind of being dead. So it, it's useful to not to bring things that are scary to mind, not to reinforce the fear, but to imagine another way of holding it and relating to it. We should do this around, some of you, I'm assuming, are concerned about what's going on in the country politically. So not to give up, not to stop being active to make positive, to bring about positive change, <coughs> but to realize non-fear would be very useful. Yeah, maybe, maybe things will get really dark. Maybe people really will be oppressed more. Can I be okay with that? Because we don't know how it's going to play out. So w don't we want to be able to maintain stability, clarity, nimbleness, creativity, no matter how things play out, right? Or do we want to sort of get into to some kind of crushing depression about what's going on? Is that helping us or anybody? No. No. It's, a, it's another problem that needs to be fixed then. So equanimity is what this world needs more than anything, what we each of us individually, but also the world. Thanks, Kermit, for bringing that up. And it's 8.30, so we should leave it here. Just enough time to put down the words. Appreciating these teachings. Appreciating the great lineage of people before us, all the women and men, all the folks before us. All of them had busy lives, challenges of their own. They developed the practice as best they could. They shared it. And like that, one generation after another, these teachings have been passed down. Now it's our turn. We're hearing these teachings. We're inspired to some degree. It's our turn to put them into practice, to realize some real equanimity, stability of mind, real space and peace, and to become part of the causes for peace and freedom from suffering in the world. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone. Always nice to be together.
Jean has a few announcements for us. Maybe you could pass the mic over to Jean. I'll just mention. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.